what happens a lot in my work is that people have a tendency to think that it was made by a man. And even when I'm thinking I'm making girly stuff like that big bow, I thought was, you know, pretty girly. I thought the phone number and white script was pretty girly. And I guess they're, they think of them as aggressive and, and technical, and that's like a manly thing. And That was Piper Brett speaking. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. Piper Brett makes 3D objects. Some of them are exquisitely crafted, like a shiny, huge, red metal bow. And sometimes they are deliberately the opposite of crafted. In her more recent work, she uses found objects, including pornographic images, to create installations that suggest ambiguous narratives. Piper was a member of Vox Populi Gallery, where we've seen her work. We're in her studio today in North Philadelphia, hoping to learn more. So Piper, uh, you said that your work is based in part on personal narrative. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, it, it was always, you know, a place that I was trying to leave, but I love going back to. My dad still lives there and I still go home and visit. And I have a bunch of wonderful friends there. Um, My art, though, I think the personal narrative is a little bit more of a detail about um, psychological states and also decisions and good and bad and things that I've done. So did you know that you wanted to be an artist from a very early age? Um, When I was little, I was really interested in art, and my grandmother was a painter, a um, self-taught painter. My dad's really good with his hands. He does a lot of carpentry and stuff. Um, But I think that there was a large time in my life where I didn't really connect with art, I'm not a very good drawer and it's just like something I've never done a lot of and so I always thought that that meant okay I'm not an artist but I've always been good at physically making things. So So when did you line uh, wind up in Philadelphia? Um, Let's see I think I got here in 2005 and before that I I had graduated from MassArt, and uh, before that, I was living on the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest. So when I drove across country to go to MassArt, I stopped in Philadelphia to visit a friend and thought it was really cool and got to Boston, and it was nothing like Philadelphia. (laughs) And so I kind of always knew that I wanted to move back to Philadelphia and buy some property. And so you own this property? I do, yeah. Have you ever owned any a house before? No, no, before? I've never owned any real estate before. And, oh, I've learned so many things. If I was to buy another house, it would probably be a different situation. But I l- looked at this one, and I knew that for the price and the amount of space, it was probably going to be perfect for me. And so basically, I came in, and I gutted everything and just slowly started putting it all back together. And your entire first floor is your studio, right? Yeah. Including space for welding and wood. You've always wanted a studio in In the the house, house. yeah. Um, I had had separate studio spaces, and I kind of, I don't feel like I'm on a creative 9-to-5 schedule, and it's, it's really good for me to kind of just, oh, I need to do this, so I'm going to go down and do it. And have that available to me whenever I want. 
So I don't know if you remember this, but um, you were in an elevator with a crowd of people and me <laughs> at the Vox building, and the elevator refused to go. It was we in, got stuck it was in, in between in, floors. Exactly. <laughs> and you whipped out a screwdriver and you said, that's what needs to have something happen to it. And you went with your screwdriver and you did something and the doors opened and we were all able to scramble out of the elevator. Yeah. And where did you learn all that? <laughs> I, um, well, in all, I mean, there's so many old elevators in Philadelphia and there's a hole in the doors. So if the elevator gets stuck, somebody on the other side can stick something. They sometimes have a special tool that you can stick in the elevator and turn it and it, sh it should open the door. So I am not exactly sure, but I'm also a little bit mechanically inclined. So I could see that there was a lever that just needed to be pushed. And if we could just push it, then it would be fine. And so that's how we got out of the elevator. <laughs> wow. No, nobody gave you a tutorial. You just figured it out. Well, there's got to be. I mean, you just know that they aren't going to build an elevator that you can't get out of. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about your art. Okay. Um, in your artist statement, you talk about your influences. And it's very wide-ranging. Everything mm -hmm. from pop culture... Notorious B.I.G., mm -hmm. the late rapper, and then you have David Foster Wallace thrown in there, yeah. one of the most heady intellectual literary talents in the last 10 years, um, also deceased. Both of these people were writers, though. They have that in common. Yeah. So talk about writing and your art. Uh, um, well, I, I would say just on the, as far as David Foster Wallace goes, he he just opened my mind to wow, I can really pull from any source. And that's what I learned from reading Infinite Jest was just he, he pulled from so many different sources. I mean, he's talking about appropriation art. He's talking about tennis. He's talking about drug addicts, Quebecois nationalist separatists. I mean, it's just, it's so insane. He's talking about film. He just never, like, limited himself. So that's, at that point, I think I decided, okay, I can... Um, scan these images and blow them up and reappropriate them. I can use whatever I need to use. This can be about whatever it's about, and it can be multi-layered, and it can also be a little bit hard to pin down. And that's when stuff usually gets interesting for me. So looking at your work um, can be a little bit uncomfortable, speaking of those images that you're scanning in. Mm -hmm. Why images of pornography? What does that represent in your work? I'm not exactly sure that I can articulate what's driving it, but I do think that with the pornography specifically, the thing that I am initially attracted to is the formal quality of the image. I think that in that way, it kind of turns into a slightly more of a commentary about photography. I think that as a personal narrative, um, I think it might just represent some deviant behaviors and maybe maybe a little bit of alter ego. I, ha I noticed that the women have a tendency to be blonde. I don't know exactly what it means, and I think I'm trying to figure it out. All of the imagery that I use, I... I look at it for, I mean, it's going to sound silly because it's pornography and whatever, <laughs> but I do, I actually look at it for a very long time. Um, at certain times, even up in my living space, I'll have images that I'm connecting with 
taped up um, and I'm dealing with them on a daily basis. And that is sort of the test, the testing ground. It's like, if I can look at this every day when I'm making coffee or whatever, then it's, it's something that I genuinely like. And I'm not just doing this to try to scare somebody or hurt them or whatever. So what are you trying to elicit from your audience? Um, I think in a, in a weird, maybe the most base way, I think I'm just trying to let them in. I, I, I'm kind of a private person and I think that this is the best way for me to express what I'm going through. How does your idea grow? Well, I have two different ways of working. I think I've, I think I've broken it down into two different categories. One are the visions and the other is activities. So with visions, I have an idea in my head of, let's say, a large bow or my name in lights or a big crystal. Um, visions are in and of themselves not practical. Things cannot float in real life. Um, you know, there's always electricity to deal with or, or some, there's some actual physical thing that you have to deal with in reality that sometimes isn't present in your vision. So with visions, I negotiate something that I don't know where it comes from and it's, it's unrealistic and I, I, I whittle it down into some form of reality. The activities, um, which I've been really kind of doing a lot more of lately, it's just like, I'm just in my studio. I have no idea what's going to happen. And I am picking stuff up and combining it or recombining it or throwing paint on it or crumpling it up or whatever and seeing what happens. A lot of those things never see the light of day. But sometimes there's one little accidental nugget that I can pull and put back into something that gets more refined down the line. Talk about storage a little bit because for a while... <laughs> I mean, ah. we, we want to know, where's that big red bow? The big red bow comes apart in 30, it's 34 of the exact same loop, and it, they just nestle together. Show you upstairs. Just like a ribbon. Yeah, they just all, they just all, and, and in fact, I made that out of paper first, and kind of studied, studied bow making on the internet, and... Um, <laughs> I made it with paper first and then was sort of like, okay, so I think my original idea, I was going to make it out of plexi. I realized that they make really thin metal, really thin gauge metal, large sheets, and that it's not very expensive. And so I just got some of that and formed the loops and put it all together. I mean, the bottom tier is screwed down to the floor and then the rest of it just fits in Let's talk just for a moment about um, two pieces that were very tied to you. One was your name in lights, mm -hmm. and the other one was your phone number mm -hmm. in neon, mm -hmm. I think. So where did that come from, and did anybody call you? A lot of people have called me. In fact, I had to... Um, the My original one was a 617 number, because when I moved here, I still had my Boston number. And then changed my number to a Philadelphia number and had this huge conundrum in my head, like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like this sign, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so I, um, I remade it. I had it remade to represent my current phone number. So I have two of them. And yeah, when it shows in a gallery, people call me, they, I can't, I can't believe they don't know what to expect. But when I answer the phone, they're usually surprised especially if I'm in the gallery and it's during the opening, it's, it's always kind of a hoot. 
and <laughs> and I think okay honestly with that phone number I think I was thinking that this would be a great way to a clever way to get dates or something <laughs> and so it hasn't really panned out on that front the name in lights I, it was 2009. I had owned the house for about a year. I was really starting to get more involved in my studio practice because it was just so much more available to me. And I like made this big decision, like, I am an artist. As if all the other stuff I had done in the past wasn't enough. But I just came to this revelation that I am an artist. It's a little bit cliche, maybe, to do your name in lights, but I... I think it was a bad idea that I did a good job of. So could you give us a sample of, of a phone conversation that you've had as a result? Of, <laughs> can Hello. you remember okay. any of them? Okay. <laughs> Hello? Who is this? This is Piper. Who's this? I'm the artist. That's my phone number. I'm here in the gallery. Where? Right behind you. Great. <laughs> so would you say you're a feminist? Yes, I I would say I'm a feminist, but I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, When I was about 19, I was really into women's studies. Uh, I did a very short stint at the University of Oregon in Eugene, where I took uh, a bunch of women's studies classes, picking apart advertisements and news segments and just various forms of media and kind of critiquing them. But then once I got into welding and glass blowing and all the other stuff that I was doing, I kind of, I'm at a point right now where I feel like actions speak louder than words. Um, I can go into the, the metal store, I can go to the welding supply, uh, Home Depot or whatever, and just by me knowing what I want and knowing what I'm doing, I think does a better service than me walking in saying I'm a feminist. I went through a period where I kind of wouldn't call myself a feminist, but now I'm back to thinking that, yeah. But I do think that there, it does come to a point where it, it kind of causes more separation than unity. So is there some theory behind your work, some theoretical underpinning? What happens a lot in my work is that people have a tendency to think that it was made by a man. I'm not intentionally trying to fool anybody or thinking that I'm making work from a male perspective, but, and even when I'm thinking I'm making girly stuff like that big bow, I thought was, you know, pretty girly. I thought the phone number and white script was pretty girly and people are still not, I guess they're, they think of them as aggressive and, and technical and that's like a manly thing. And, that kind of commentary, I think, is interesting, but it's also kind of, it's made me think, okay, like, how can I loosen this up? How can I, how can I blur the lines even more so it's not just a, a male or female perspective? So let's talk about the dreamy quality of your work, because mm. there's a lot of times when we've seen several of your shows at Vox Populi, and mm. you put objects with photographs on the wall, mm. and there's maybe not a, a direct connection or a connection at all, but mm. people want to read a story into things. I'm thinking in particular of the the two cats and the little bag of cocaine, mm-hmm. and then there was this big black object mm-hmm. on a, a pedestal of some sort. Mm-hmm. Was it really cocaine? It was really cocaine. Okay. Um, I'm going to say once again, the cats and the coke was a very formal decision. 
I think most people agree that they, they do go together, but nobody can really pin down why. And of course, I find that interesting. The picture and the, the small bag of cocaine, and I had it on my desk for a long time. And I mean, I looked at that in, for a long time before deciding that that was going to be what I do. Um, I think that that whole show, Psychic Punctum, really talks a lot about just darkness in general. The cocaine is is kind of a metaphor for just like a mechanical dark activity. You know, when you look at the cats, I think that there is a narrative that forms in the head and you kind of go through this more surreal catscape, if you will, and then the cocaine is right next to it and that is instantly jarring like and you stop. I mean, I'm not really into surrealist painting so much, but I think that it just like recombining for a dreamlike quality is is kind of how I think, I guess. What do you hope people take away? Is there something you in particular want them to take away or is it open? Um, It's pretty open. I mean, I do think that I am letting a little bit be known about me without actually saying anything. I mean, I am, I don't, I'm not a drug user. I don't, I don't even drink right now. So, um, but I, I have this past of maybe I was a partier and, and I think that I'm like, you know, I think that I'm working through that. I think that it's okay to use your art in any way you want to. And so, I mean, I'm not saying it's a therapy situation, but I am kind of chronicling it and making it, making it okay for me because otherwise this was just this time in my life that I was just this crazy person. And do you worry that people will get the wrong idea about you or be offended by what you're thinking? I mean, I can't, okay. I can't make everybody happy. Number one, number two, it's, it's really like way more about me. And I think that, okay, so I do have this past of my life where I loved being crazy. I loved being bad. I loved, um, you know, the excitement. And so now I, you know, I, I don't drink, I live alone. I kind of, it's real easy to get bored. And so I think that I'm sort of using my art as this exciting kind of party thing. And I mean, I take little risks like that, like put the cocaine on the wall I mean, I felt like I was taking a risk getting the cocaine and then, you know, having it in my house and all this stuff. I mean, it came in an orange baggie and I needed the baggie to be pink. So I had to buy baggies off the Internet. I had like thousands of the, you know, you can't just buy one little baggie, you know, and you think ten dollars. Maybe I'll get 100 baggies ten dollars. I mean, they send you thousands of baggies. I have an envelope full of like thousands of these little pink baggies and I mean, so I think that that's where a lot of it comes from. I'm not trying to freak anybody out. I think I'm. I think in a weird way, I'm just trying to process my life and have a little bit of fun, and still feel like I'm a little hardcore and badass, but without actually being bad. You have a show coming up soon at Rebecca Templeton. Yeah. And um, <laughs> is it hardcore and badass? There might be one. I you know, and I try to be. I try to. I'm trying to. I'm really trying to kind of like keep things in balance. So I think that I have one piece that's going to be considered hardcore and then something that's going to, I'm going to try to sweeten the deal a little bit also. And when is that show? That show opens Thursday, September 12th. 
Well, thank you, Piper. On that note, we're going to let you go. You're not tortured anymore. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you nice. very much. Thank We've been you. speaking with Piper Brett in North Philly. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.